You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. On the Heart of Giving podcast, we're going to bring you a series of episodes that feature powerful Black women who are giving back. We thought we would do this to emphasize the important role that Black women play in philanthropy today and in helping us think about how we can be more impactful citizens and leaders in our organizations. You'll see that the people we feature are going to be from various professions and walks of life. And they all have a really fascinating story to tell about what engaged them in giving back and how they're going about doing it today. And by the way, each of our guests have been previous guests on the podcast. And I want to refer you to the podcast episode in the episode link so that you can go right to that particular podcast and hear the full interview that we've had with each of these wonderful people. In this episode, you'll hear from Ashley Axios, who is the Chief Experience Officer and owner, Coforma, Stacey Holland, CEO of Elevate 215, Karen E. Osborne, novelist and founder of the Osborne Group, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Ashley Axios of Coforma. So Ashley, let me get into your background and history a little bit to try to flesh out how you arrived to this place now where you see design as such a powerful tool for shifting society in a positive direction. Were you someone growing up who had this sense that I need to engage in something artistic or something design oriented? What led you to a career in this field? It's a great question. For me, I was exposed early on to difficult circumstances, to poverty and to homelessness. And so That's, I think, one side of what led me into design and design for social change was just seeing the need and the reality in a very kind of poignant, sticky way. And the other side of it was certainly being a creative kid and liking to make things and to find solutions that were more visual or tactile 
compared to maybe some other peers. So together, and it took me quite a long time to <laughs> to really find the flow and figure out what fields combine these things, but they really work incredibly well together in design for social change and looking at the reality of a situation as it is today, a big situation like homelessness in a city or something smaller like an interface and imagining a better future and reality and kind of using the skills that I've acquired over time to put those together into really proposing solutions to those problems and painting a path that helps people get from that point A to point B. But early on, it was all about, I think, creative thinking and making and allowing myself also. I think most creatives spend so much time in their youth just observing the world around them and kind of taking it all in. So, you know, whether it was the hard stuff, like being exposed, like I said, to homelessness or poverty or just some of the more beautiful things, a real skill that I built up early on is just being able to really see what was happening around me and being still and just taking in the reality as it as it is. Because if you can't see the world as it is, you certainly can't do much to improve on it, right? You might be in a denial or just have a complete lack of awareness on it. So might I ask you to talk to us a bit about your experience with homelessness? I know that for many people, how they grew up, what they saw, what they experienced certainly leads them in a certain direction, certainly sets a path for them in some way. Maybe they don't even see it at the time. Mm -hmm. What was your experience with homelessness and how did that begin to shape you? Well, I think a lot of it is to the credit of my mother. She wasn't going to put up false walls and, and block us from the world around us. And it's a very religious woman. So she took my brother and I to feed the homeless out in the cold fall and, and winter days in the Washington, D.C. area, even when we we're pretty young. So just spending time with the back of a van open and a big pot of chili helping serve food to those who needed it just showed me one that there was need in the community and that there are people in my neighborhood who were cold who were hungry who i wasn't going to be exposed to unless i went out of my way to be exposed to them so just having that awareness really early on and then also just showed me that there was something that i could do about it right that sense of agency and action i had a role to play a small one <laughs> and it was a community thing certainly wasn't all on my shoulders but there was a way for even me as a little kid to help and so that that's just one example but my mother was really lovely in exposing my brother and i to a number of examples like that of just we're going somewhere we have an extra spot in our car how can we, prior to, you know, Lyft and, and Uber and all of that, but how can we use what we do have, the privileges, the space and the power to support and assist others, either as individuals or groups and close to home in our own communities? So that one was a beautiful one. I remember that the first time we went out to feed the homeless, suddenly I was asking to do it because it made me feel better. Once you're aware, <laughs> as a kid, it was like, yeah. I, it's cold again. Are we going to go out and, and feed the homeless? Because you're aware of it and you just want to help. And it, it really is such a satisfying thing to be able to do something about the circumstances around you, the things that 
our inequities, you know, I wouldn't have that word as a kid, but are, are things that would otherwise kind of eat me up that it exists in our society. So your mother was a champion for you to engage. What would you say about your mother that you might want to offer to mothers today as far as having the power and the ability to raise children to care about other people? I would say just exposure does so much. I think there must be, I'm not a parent myself, so you all can certainly tell me, but I think there must be tremendous pressure to have all of the answers and all of the solutions. But the first step is really just exposure and awareness. And so opening up those doors to that and giving a little bit of room, even just to awareness, can do beautiful things and creating room for empathy and compassion and a kind of collective mindset in in children. And I, my mom is <laughs> would be the first to say that she certainly doesn't have all of the answers, but over time, we came to figure out things that we could do to make a difference. And so I would say just don't be afraid of feeling like you have to have all the answers and being afraid of the types of questions that kids are going to ask because the fact that they're asking them and that they're inquisitive and that they're paying attention is in itself an amazing gift and really an, a necessary first step. Fantastic. You know, this is the Heart of Giving podcast. We we named it that because we believe that there's a real power in giving of yourself. Actually, you get more sometimes in return when you give than in what you give away. And clearly that comes from the heart, that, that impetus to give comes from the heart and what you get in return feeds your heart. And I can see that it kind of had that effect on you. You know, here you are, let's go out. Mother says, let's go out and feed the homeless in the middle of the cold. And you're and you're thinking, I don't want to go out in the cold, but you do it. And then suddenly you want to do it again. Yeah. Do you remember or do you can you possibly imagine what it was like for you back then that changed you, that that really touched your heart, that made you say, I'm going to do this again. I want to do this again because it's the right thing. And it's because what I sh- it's, it's what I should be doing. I mean, I think it's such a combination of factors. It's the fact that somebody who, an individual in that group who was cold and didn't look happy at all, lit up when you hand when I handed them the bowl of chili, right? That you could see that you're bringing somebody joy. Maybe this is rationalization, you know, years later, but I also think it's just the chemical reaction too of knowing that you've helped somebody and that releases endorphins. It feels good for me to be able to support somebody else in their time of, of need. And I think that's completely fine, right? This, you know, this selfishness of giving to others that you get something back emotionally, chemically, even by supporting others. When I'm in my worst places, I still kind of lean on that. I always feel better when I support and help others, when I'm feeling incredibly down, when I'm feeling like I don't have power or control in a scenario. So there's certainly something there that I come back to even today. And then I I think just kind of looking back at that period of time, there's also this feeling of being a part of something that's bigger than myself. I was a part of 
a small group who was doing this and suddenly we were together. We were a community and it's a different type of family to be able to give as a part of a collective as opposed to doing it as an individual. And I think that has also drawn me back in over time to to giving and supporting in, in new ways and, and building kind of new communities through the practice. Stacy Holland of Elevate 215. So Stacy, how did you get to education as a career and as really a passion from what I can see in your background? Well, first, let me just thank you for this opportunity. I am very excited to have this conversation today, mainly because I think as we are exploring what the field of education will look like now and in the future, understanding people's journey is critical and how how they've come into this place of what I call learning, right? And so I've landed in this world of trying to discover what it means to be a learner because of my own journey. I was the kid who I call the middle of the cookie. I was a really good kid, involved in all kinds of extracurricular activities, leader, all those things. And silently behind the scenes, my grades were average to mediocre and in some cases just bad. And no one really figured that out until I went to apply for college along with all of my peers, and I did not get into college. And so it was a shock to everybody, including my own mom. And so that started for me a lifelong journey and passion of trying to answer the question, well, what happens in school that we somehow miss kids that are in the middle of the cookie, right? We miss a whole swath of young people that are really smart, have a lot of potential, but for whatever reason, they're not really connecting to learning in the classroom. And so that started a well, 30 plus year journey, starting out with landing in an equal opportunity program at my alma mater, Trenton State, which is now the College of New Jersey and being introduced to a world of learning and support that I really had not thought about prior to. And that program really is the reason why I became an educator. I thought I was going to school to be a lawyer. I wanted to you know, go work in the international market and make a lot of money. I had never traveled outside of New Jersey, but someone told me that was impressive. And so that's what I thought I wanted to do. And along the way, I just, I struggled. I struggled all through college, studied a lot, was really tenacious, but never quite figured out what it meant for me to be a learner. And then ended up being recommended to attend a graduate program at Columbia University that focused on student development and specifically looking at minority students and how they develop and then how would they transition and are supported in college. And then I became obsessed. Wow, there's a whole world of kids like me and a whole world of professionals that their whole job is to find kids like me and get them on the path of a post-secondary experience. And so I did that for several years and then realized, wow, this actually, there's a systemic issue. There's a disconnect here 
I can get them in the college, but we're not keeping them in college and why? And it really came back to this whole idea of learning. And so I then just focused on, well, how do we help young people and build systemic solutions that one, prepare young people to be learners? And the second, how do we actually then create the conditions within the various learning systems, i.e. K to 12 and or higher ed that support them and get them to whatever their choice is, whatever that career choice is. And I was seeing myself a lot in the journey as as I was helping kids and thinking about how to create these programs and systems. I was seeing my own struggle. I was seeing my own disconnect. And I was also kind of struggling and battling with that as well. Once you've been left behind, it's really hard to catch up, and specifically after you leave school. So how do we how do we change that for young people? So many young people are behind anyway because of uh, schools that may be underperforming, their social backgrounds. And we talk a lot about the social determinants of health. We could probably also talk about the social determinants of education. If you come from a poor neighborhood that's not funded very well, maybe if you don't get the right supports, you're going to probably fall behind. And if there aren't significant interventions, then you stay behind. I heard it said some years ago that you could determine where a young person was going to end up in life by the time they were in third grade. (laughs) And that's really sad. But Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, I think it's true. So we need these interventions. What are we seeing, though, in the in the field of education right now to help people like you? Probably like me, too, because I was also one of these people who was woefully behind when I entered college. What are we doing to to help them? And if you add on the pandemic and Zoom classes that are probably underperforming expectations, what are we doing? What are we going to see if we aren't able to help these young people get caught up? So I think we have to start, first of all, with just acknowledging as a country that our entire educational system, specifically in K-12, is outdated. And it's we're still working on an industrial age structure of which we are no longer an industrial economy. We are a knowledge economy. So we first need to start with the fact of we have to educate people to actually perform and think differently in a whole different global context. And I think once we start there, this is, if we look at COVID and the lessons it has taught us, one of the things it did was reveal all of the brokenness of our educational system across the board for learners. And I intentionally use the word learners versus students. Our systems are not designed to teach learners, to build learners, to have them discover. It's a science, right? How your brain takes in information, how you, at the end of the day, process that information, how you then push that information out, how you apply that information. And because we are not doing that intentionally across the board for everybody, we are leaving groups of kids behind, specifically those young people who don't have a safety net, right? They're not living in a community that is economically prosperous. 
their schools, all the extra supports that those schools have do not exist in our low-income communities, whether it be rural or urban, they don't exist. So now the safety net's gone too. So COVID kind of blew that all up and said, hey, guess what? Not only do you have a problem because your entire structure is outdated, you now have a problem because every community is disrupted. And what are you going to do? And I think there is an opportunity for us as a country and there's opportunity for us, one, to tell some truths that we have been unwilling to address and both at the federal level, at the state level and at the local level and in local level, meaning cities or towns, but also in individual households and in our own informal communities that we've got to rethink the way that we are supporting young people in their learning journey. It's not about test scores. It's not about not about performance and certain benchmarks. That's data and information that tells us where the young person is. But the next step is you've got to be willing, adult, educator, system leader, you've got to be willing to think creatively around how to build experiences and systems that moves that young person through a learning journey. And if we do that well, they will perform on all the tests because I'm not saying you don't need them. They're diagnostic and you need them. But what you can't do is stop there. It now should open up a space of creativity and a space that's like a Rubik's Cube. And when I worked in schools, I literally would find the most challenging kid. <laughs> and it was like, you're going to be my Rubik's Cube. <laughs> I'm going to figure out what the what the challenge is for you, why you don't like anybody, why you have a discipline issue, why at the end of the day they think you're on the verge of dropping out, you're not going to be anything. We're going to figure that out because you are going to be, there's potential in you. We, Our job, my job, educator's job is to unlock that potential. And it might mean I have to try multiple things. And I always found that young person that was the challenge was probably the smartest kid in the in the space. <laughs> they were bored. They weren't engaged. People didn't talk to them. They didn't try certain things to figure out what's going on with you, young person, because they have a whole building full of other kids. But COVID showed us personalized learning, we've got to pay attention to. Karen Osborne, novelist. And I'm just curious how all of this kind of connects. And, you know, how did you go from a passion as a little girl into a career in nonprofit work? And what's your story? How did you do all this? How did all this come about? In today's world, you find young people actually choosing development and choosing philanthropy as a profession. But back in the day, I had no idea that it was a profession. And my husband said to me, I had been home taking care of my children, and we, were, we had agreed that I would stay home while the children were young. But now the children were both in school, and I was busy running the PTA, and I was running the Bluebirds, and I was helping some guy with a candidacy. And so my husband, Bob, looked at me, and he said, Karen, you need to take all that energy and all that leadership skills, and you need to find a job. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So I fell into my first uh, fundraising job. I 
it just fell into it. But I what was it? What was it? I was working for the town of Tarrytown, New York, and the government. I was working for the government of Tarrytown, and they wanted to help the small not-for-profits, mostly mostly serving minorities, you know, uh, black and brown folk, and to help them learn how to write grants to get money from the government, how to be successful. I had no idea how to do that, but I talked myself into the job, and then I, I learned. I just learned on the job. I went and talked to other people, and so that's how I started. And I, by the time I got to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute as a director of corporate relations, I was so fortunate. Now, you know um, Sue Washburn, Oh, I correct? do. Yeah. yeah. Well. Mm-hmm. well, she and Bill McGoldrick uh, became partners, but I worked for Bill back in the back when he was director of development at Rensselaer. And the thing that he taught me that stayed with me forever is about the power of philanthropy, about how it changes, it can change everything, how it can save the world, save people, educate people. And the only thing I knew about giving was to the church and to family. You you helped out your neighbors, you helped out your family, you gave to your church. But now he was telling me, no, you invest in education, you invest in not-for-profits. You... And so I, I fell in love. I fell in love with this, this work. And I guess that's the connection to philanthropy and writing. Because I loved, I've always loved writing. I've always loved reading. I've always loved writing. And so I was so fortunate to have three passions being a frontline fundraiser, a manager of fundraisers, a teacher of fundraisers, a teacher of CEOs, and to be a writer, a published writer. Who knew that that could happen at this point in my life? Wow. That's, that's kind of a fascinating story because in some ways it's consistent with what we hear about people in our sector you know they come in they don't have any particular training to do certain things but yet they fall in love with either the mission of the organization that they're working in or something drives them either because of you know how they came about or maybe they fell into it in my case and once you get into it you sort of fall in love with it so I just completed an episode with a woman by the name of Cindy Lott who teaches at Columbia. She actually runs the School of Professional Studies in the Nonprofit Management Program over at Columbia. And we were talking about this professionalization of the nonprofit sector. Obviously something that is truly important, but there still is this this conflict that I think sometimes we have. You know, we sort of wonder if we get too educated, will we lose the passion? <laughs> And if we're not educated enough, will we actually know what we're doing and and can we accomplish anything? How do you see that balance? I start with passion because I don't want, like, for instance, if I'm trying to hire somebody, you know, when I was a manager, I wanted to know that they believed in education because I worked for higher ed. Wanted to understand that that's what... They, so that's what I'd ask questions about. I'd ask questions about why education, why us, what do you think the impacts could be? 
because fundraising is so e- it's not a complicated thing. It has a couple of key components that you have to learn how to do. But if you don't care about the organization, if you don't care about the institution, and if you don't care about philanthropy, if you yourself are not a giver, I wish, I tell you, Art, I wish that every search firm who is looking for the C- a CEO or a high-level position in any not-for-profit, in any institution of education, that one of the questions they would ask is, tell me about the causes you care about. Who do you give to? Who have you volunteered for? Why? Because it's hard to be good at our work if you've never experienced the joy of, of giving. So I think if you have those two things then I can teach you. I can teach you the elements because it's not rocket science. Mm. A lot of questions come out of what you said. One of them is, what was it about education that gripped you so much, and higher ed in particular? When my husband and I came out of... I've known him since I was 13 years old, and he was 14, and we were friends. And we were the children, the second generation of immigrants, And everybody on my block was the second generation of immigrants, of strivers, of people who had come to America, and most of them from the Caribbean, to have a better, teach their children to have a better life. And they were firemen and policemen, and they worked for the transit. But my dad had a degree from Columbia University. And we, I can remember Bob and I just sitting there saying, That's our goal. We are going to go to college. We are going to be more like him than like the firemen. And not that there was anything wrong with that. You know, that's a good thing. Thank goodness. But we wanted this this other opportunity. And we had to put ourselves through college. We we but we saw what it did for us. We saw that it the door that it opened. We saw that because all of these children of these immigrants all went to college, and ended up with good jobs and children that they taught to grow and be. So I think from a as a people, as an African American woman, as an African American man, we both saw education as. A door, a door to home ownership, a door to um, the things that we hope to be able to do in, in life. So it was easy to care about education, very easy. And then to try to provide that opportunity for others, obviously, in your work. Exactly, for lots of, lots of others. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Heart of Giving podcast. We're featuring powerful black women who are giving back. Thanks for tuning in. And if you want to support the podcast, please do so by making a donation at give.org, G-I-V-E dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBBY's Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.